0: Reading from John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. the son of God and that through believing you may have life in his name. I ask God's blessing on the reading of his word.
1: So this morning's text is uh, the famous text where uh, doubting Thomas does has his moment in the spotlight and I think it's, uh, it's a shame that this is Thomas's big moment and that for time and memoriam he's been known as doubting thomas it doesn't say that anywhere in the bible we he's just kind of picked up that nickname over the centuries and i think it's a little it's all uh harsh after all he and i don't know why he wasn't there but he wasn't there for most of the events that the other disciples had the Advantage. He came in late and maybe you've done this. You've come in late and you've missed something and everyone pounces on you and says, Oh man, you missed out on everything. Oh, Jesus rose from the dead. There was all this and he came in here and he blessed us and he breathed on us and it was great. You missed everything. And Thomas is probably feeling pretty sheepish at that point, uh, and a little defensive (laughs) and doesn't believe it. He could, he could be called late Thomas. Right, we could have been his nickname as well. That's no better. But uh, so Thomas was uh, a little defensive about it. Well, you know, unless I, unless I see him myself and touch his wounds, I'm not going to believe what you guys had to say. Maybe uh, he's been the object of many practical jokes by the disciples. Who knows? You know, they might have been a, that kind of that kind of crowd. He could have been a lot of different things. He was called the twin. Even here, uh, he must have been must have had a, either a brother or a sister who was a twin to him because he's known as the twin was his nickname up until we started calling him Doubting Thomas. Uh, he might have been called Brave Thomas because Thomas was the one who stood up in Luke and said, let us go to Judea that we might die with him. When Jesus said, well, I'm going to Jerusalem to die and, and Thomas stood up and said, we will go with you and we will die with you and stay with you, stay with you Lord. Uh, of course, everyone scattered when things happened. But and we could be called confused, Thomas. There's another quote from Thomas when uh, he's talking about Jesus is talking about his death, and uh, Thomas says, "Lord, we do not know. We do not know where you are going. How can we know the way to get there?" And this prompts Jesus to say, "I am the way, and the truth, and the life." Thomas, pay attention. So he could be called confused, Thomas. But, you know, the question here about for Thomas really seems to be centered on whether or not Thomas believes that Jesus actually rose from the dead. However, the time when John is writing, there, it's a little more complicated than that. And John, in fact, has, has a particular agenda to try and convey a few ideas with this episode with Thomas. Uh, one of the things, the first thing that, that John is accomplishing with this story is, is he defines a particular orthodoxy around theology and Christology. Christology is who is a, dis, a fancy word for talking about who is Jesus. Exactly. And, and John, when John is writing his gospel, it's uh, a lot, there's a lot going on, but one of the things that is happening in John's gospel is it is a polemic against other thoughts about who Jesus is. There were, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there was not a Christianity when the gospels were being written, but there were a lot of Christianities and there were a lot of different ideas and there were many people writing different things. And, uh, and, and there was some infighting about who exactly Jesus was and some of the, some of the details. And when John is writing, there's a group of Gnostics, uh, Christian Gnostics who didn't really think that Jesus was fully human. They didn't have a problem with Jesus being divine. The issue was really Jesus being fully human. And the issue here was how can the creator of the universe, the God, the transcendent God, inhabit a human body. How can there be such an incarnation? And so the the notion was that Jesus was kind of a, a hologram, if you will, some kind of shell of a person, not a real not really flesh and blood, and therefore didn't die didn't suffer and die on a cross. That was all kind of done for our benefit. Well, John's community took great exception to that notion and when John is writing he takes every minute he every opportunity he can to point to Jesus's not only his deity but his humanity as well and and one of the issues that uh, is in is a contrast to the gnostic notion of Jesus just being spirit was that Jesus rose bodily from the dead and you could touch his wounds you could touch his the side where they pierced him and you could touch his hands where the nails uh, were driven and and things like that so john is establishing an orthodoxy by the way this was he won this is the <laughs> he won that battle because when they decided to put the bible together they said you know what we're going with john's version of things uh, and so john and and pauline theology really are the ones that won out over and against all the other options that were out there, not the least of which was kind of a gnostic version uh, of things uh, so John won, and so that 's why we 're reading john 's ortho- version of orthodoxy, so it establishes this idea of who Jesus was, that Jesus uh, that later gets articulated. In the uh, the Nicene Creed, that Jesus was both was fully God and fully human, make sense of that if you will. But there it is. So uh, the second accomplishment that happens here is that it affirms our faith in the risen Christ. John speaks to those who would seek proof by con- commending those who have not seen and yet their faith persists because after all after after these first few people after thomas and a few others once they all died there was no one left who actually saw got got to have this option of seeing and believing everyone who came after the last disciple passed away uh everyone who came after that we're left with not seeing and believing and here, John takes a moment to just commend us for that. In the words of Jesus, uh, blessed are those who who have not seen and yet still believe. And I would posit that in this day and age, there is a great many who would join Thomas in this desire to have that objective proof, to have that objective proof that Jesus was Messiah, and Jesus rose from the dead, and, and all of those things. And... Um, I guess I would say this, you know, I I don't know if you know this, so when we go to the Pride, I don't know why they do this, but the Pride Festival, when we have our booth at the Pride Festival, they always set set us up either right next to or across from the atheist booth. (laughs) And I don't know why that is, but... I love going and talking to the atheists, <laughs> so I go over there and, and uh, try and have try and have civil conversation with the atheists about, uh, and I try to get them on board. I'm like, you know what? We have a lot more in common than we don't, and you, you know, you would do well to, you know, tell people if they have to go. What I try to get them to do is, if you ha- tell people if you if you still want to believe in God, go to First Baptist. That's why I try to get cuz we'll, you know, we're we're the good kind of Christian. <laughs> All the things that they hate about religion, uh we're not like that. So, <laughs> you know, send them our way. That's what I try to get them to do. And I and I say if there's a be people in my church that don't want to believe in anything and want to be skeptical, I'll send them to you. We'll have an agreement. They never go for it. Uh but uh that's my that's my offer to them. But you know what, but the for the most part, I think these groups and even Thomas they get hung up on the wrong details it's not the empirical fact of the resurrection that is compelling and I know that I know that's we get excited about that because we just had Easter but it is not the empirical fact of the resurrection that is making the difference in our lives It is the Jesus that is alive in you and in me. It's this, it's that Jesus works inside of me. That's what's life transforming. It's that Holy Spirit connection to the, to the risen Christ that we have that says Jesus is alive and well, but not because I can touch Jesus' hands or feet or even that that was ever a thing. It's that Jesus is here, right now, in me, at work, in you, at work, in us, connecting us to each other and connecting us to God. That's what makes, that's the point of resurrection. That's that's what we mean by, I serve a living Savior and He's in the world today. Not that His body is somewhere, He's showing up places. Uh, in our theology, Jesus is gone. He's gone back to heaven and... The place Jesus is in the world is in me and in you. And that's why Jesus in this story breathes the Holy Spirit into the disciples at that moment. Because he's leaving. You're not going to have me to touch anymore. What you are going to have is the Spirit, the breath of God that is inside you and inside All who choose to follow Christ. And inside all of God's people. Amen? That's what's transforming. That's what's life-affirming. That's what's salvific, if you will. In a very real sense, I have seen the living Christ. He is alive and well in all the faces we see here. And in that spiritual awakening that we have. So again, it's not the nails in His hands and feet. That saved me. It's that sense of God's acceptance and love that I felt through those who believe and were called to love beyond what I thought myself capable of. That is what has saved me. So in my mind, it's not so much that Thomas has doubts. To me, that seems inconsequential. It seems inconsequential. Uh, what's problematic was that he kind of wanted to stop there, and he kind of set everything up for failure. Right. Thomas said, oh, I'm not going to believe unless I can put my hand, my finger in the in his side and in his in his hands. I'm not going to believe in Well, he kind of sets himself up in this way. Like, what? Well, how convenient. What a great excuse. Well, I couldn't touch him. So forget it. I'm out. Well, that's, that, you know, that's like saying, that's like testing prayer by praying for a Mustang. And then when you walk out the door and don't see a Mustang in your driveway, you assume the prayer doesn't work. Well, that is now prayer works. <laughs> prayer works not because I get what I want, but because I'm changed by prayer because it changes me, right? I pray and I feel peaceful. I feel better. I feel Connected, I feel like there's something bigger going on than myself. That's all the proof I need that prayer works. Not necessarily that I pray for pudding for lunch and I get pudding for lunch. There's a third accomplishment here in that this text establishes what believing is. Thomas declares in this moment when he when he's finally confronted with Jesus right in front of him, he he declares. His faith, my Lord and my God. Once he got past his initial hang up, he fully embraced the transformative relationship with the risen Christ. It's interesting to note that as we read this, Thomas's condition was I want to be able to touch the wounds, the, his, the wound in his side, the wound in his hand. But the Bible doesn't record that he actually did that. Jesus appears and says, See here my side, see here my hands. And Thomas just falls to his knees and declares, My Lord and my God. Maybe, and it doesn't record that he actually did the thing that he thought he needed to do. I like this picture of Thomas being so overcome by the presence of Jesus that he forgets all about his doubts and he declares his faith right there, My Lord and my God. And he gives us kind of the definition of what faith and believing is all about. When the Bible, so when they, when they translate the Bible into other languages, occasionally the translators are stuck with a language where they don't have a word like Lord or even a word like God. And so they have to come up with other ways to say this, this idea. And what they do, in that case, the translator would put on the lips of Thomas, the, the one who rules over me and the one that I worship. This is the relationship that gets established by faith. The, we acknowledge the one who rules over me. The one whose rules I am following in order to make sense of the world. I'm going to follow the teachings and the leadings of Jesus Christ so that I might have the, uh, the good life so that I might make sense of my world and I am going to allow Jesus. to. If some, some people are uncomfortable with the word Lord, but this is really what we're talking about. We're talking about being followers of the, of the ways of Jesus in order that the world might be a better place. Amen. That, that's what it means. The other thing that's nice about the word Lord is that uh, it was a bit subversive because Caesar was also called Lord. Uh, and so when you call Jesus lord it means caesar is not lord and that will get you thrown in jail right <laughs> so it was a little it was a little subversive but uh, to call Jesus lord is to say i am going to follow your ways and I, your ways will be my ways and i'm going to learn from that and that's how i'm going to live into this world and i am also this is here i am going the way i know who god is in my life is through jesus christ the way I worship God is through worshiping Jesus. The incarnation of all that God is, I understand, through looking at Jesus. And so that's what that means. That's what we mean when we say that Thomas finally believed and declares Jesus Lord and God. is the one whose rules I'm going to follow, whose ways I'm going to follow, and the one whom I worship in order that I might know who God is in my life. Amen? That's what believing is. And so here's where the real evidence are revealed. It's in allowing God through Christ to be the compass that points us where we need to go. And we are inviting God through Christ to be in charge, to take over. And to experience, and, and the experience of feeling led by God and the experience of being part of something bigger than ourselves and being taught by the teachings of the Holy Spirit, that is what full life really looks like. And if we will allow ourselves to declare Jesus Lord and God, that's all the proof we're going to need. That should dissipate our doubts as we live into that full and abundant life that God has promised us. Um, it's okay to doubt. It's okay to wonder about the technicality. It's okay, to, it's okay to, to say, well, you know, I don't really see how that's possible. Because it whittles away the unimportant stuff and narrows down, down to what's really significant what's really transformative what's really going to make a difference in our lives and in the world and that difference is going to be our spiritual connection to the living christ whom we declare lord and god amen let us pray great and loving savior we thank you so much that You have revealed Yourself to us, not by standing in front of us and letting us touch Your hands, but in all the ways that You reveal Yourself to us in other people, in the act of worship, in our singing, in our reading of Scripture, in in the vision You have for the Kingdom of God, the way we are connected one to another. All of it cries out that You are the Messiah, that you are the one anointed. Be our way, our God. We thank you for that. Amen.